Welcome to the last month at the Federal Circuit, a look at recent Federal Circuit decisions impacting the intellectual property community. Finnegan partner Mike Jakes joins us now to offer insight into recently decided cases and their potential implications. Mike is currently the leader of Finnegan's appellate practice. He has appeared in over 100 appeals at the Federal Circuit and argued nearly 50 times. Mike, the Arthrex decision has been in the news since it was decided last October. Kathleen Daly discussed the decision on this podcast in December, but it seems there were still a lot of open questions. Can you start just by reminding us what the Arthrex decision is about? Sure. Arthrex, which was decided last year on Halloween, October 31st, was a decision that surprised many people. The Federal Circuit held that the judges on the Patent Trial and Appeal Board were unconstitutionally appointed. Now, the Appointments Clause, which is part of Article 2, Section 2 of the Constitution, gives the president the power to appoint public officials with the advice and consent of the Senate. Although the Senate must confirm certain principal officers, Congress may delegate the Senate's advice and consent role for inferior officers to the heads of departments. Under the law that gives the Patent Trial and Appeal Board its authority, the administrative patent judges on the board were appointed by the Secretary of Commerce, not the President. The Federal Circuit held in Arthrex that the judges were not inferior officers and should have been appointed by the President and confirmed by the Senate. The Arthrex panel then said it could fix the constitutional problem by stripping out the part of the law that prevented the judges from being fired without cause. This reduced the judges back to inferior officers and cured the problem with their appointment by the Secretary of Commerce. The court then vacated the board's written decision in Arthrex and sent the case back for a different panel of the board to be assigned. This obviously caused a lot of disruption because of the large number of cases already decided by the board and on appeal in one stage or another. So what has happened since the Arthrex decision? Well, there was a lot of uncertainty right after Arthrex about how it would be applied. But in the last month or so, the Federal Circuit has started to sort out the pending board appeals. First, in several appeals, the court has granted motions to vacate the board's final written decisions and remand the cases to the board for reassignment. In some cases, the appeals had already been briefed, and in others, motions were filed before any briefing on the merits. The court vacated the board's decisions regardless of whether there was an appointments clause challenge presented to the board or included in the notice of appeal. As long as the argument was raised in the appellant's opening brief or in a motion before any briefs were filed, the court has applied Arthrex and vacated the board's decisions. Now, in many of those appeals, the Patent Office intervened and opposed vacating the board's decisions. The PTO director intervened and asked the court to hold off on any decision until they can consider Arthrex and Bank. The Patent Office also argued the appointments clause argument had been waived if it wasn't raised before the board. Of course, the Federal Circuit already addressed that in Arthrex and found an exception to waiver, even though the patent owner didn't raise the appointments clause argument before the board. And the court is not waiting until after in-bank consideration to vacate the decisions and send the cases back to the board. But where the appointments clause argument wasn't raised in the appellant's opening brief, the Federal Circuit has held that the argument was waived. There was a case, Custom Media versus Dish Networks, which was decided right after Arthrex. And there the court held that the appointments clause challenges were not jurisdictional and that the court would grant relief only when the party had properly raised the challenge on appeal. What about petitioners? Have they been able to challenge the board's decisions as 
unconstitutional under Arthrex? No, only uh, patent owners have been able to successfully raise appointments clause challenges in the federal circuit. In a non-precedential order in a case called Siena versus Oyster Optics, the panel denied the petitioner's motion to vacate and remand. The court there said that unlike the patent owner in Arthrex, the petitioner in Siena sought out the board's jurisdiction and knew, or at least could have known, of the structural defect in the appointment of the judges. So under these circumstances, the court held that the petitioner had forfeited its appointments clause challenge. So we now know that only patent owners can raise appointments clause arguments on appeal. It's not necessary that they raise the arguments before the board, but they must raise it in a motion or in their opening brief on appeal. Not all the federal circuit judges are on board, though. Two of the judges wrote a concurring opinion in the non-precedential order in a case called Polaris versus Kingston where the court vacated the board's decision. Judge Hughes wrote a concurring opinion, which Judge Wallach joined, in which he disagreed with Arthrex. He said that Arthrex was wrongly decided, but they were bound to follow it as a precedent. Judge Hughes said that the board judges are inferior officers because the PTO director has significant control over their activities, and therefore they're properly appointed by the Secretary of Commerce. He also expressed doubts about the remedy applied in Arthrex, to fix the unconstitutional appointment if it was in fact unconstitutional. Okay, so where does that leave us with Arthrex? Well, the PTO director intervened in Arthrex when the constitutional issue was raised. And then after the order vacating the board's decision and remanding the case, Patent Office filed a petition for rehearing in bank. Both parties also filed for rehearing. Arthrex argued that the entire statute should have been struck down as unconstitutional. And in responding to Arthrex's position, the Patent Office also argued that the Appointments Clause argument was waived because it should have been raised before the board. Those petitions for rehearing are all still pending. Whether or not the court grants rehearing in bank, there's still likely to be more written on this. We know that at least two judges don't agree with Arthrex, so there could at least be an opinion dissenting from the denial of rehearing in bank, and then, of course, a possible petition to the Supreme Court. But in the meantime, in those appeals where the Appointments Clause challenges have been properly raised, it appears the Federal Circuit will continue to vacate the board's written decisions and remand the cases. Another area of law that continues to attract significant attention is patent eligibility under Section 101. You've discussed that subject a couple of times on this podcast. What's been happening there? Well, first, we were waiting for almost a year to see what the Supreme Court would do with the Berkheimer case. In that case, the Federal Circuit held that patent eligibility is an issue of law, but there may be underlying issues of fact. The court held that for some claims, there were disputed factual issues in step two of the Mayo-Alice analysis that could not be resolved on summary judgment. The defendant in Berkheimer, Hewlett-Packard, filed a cert petition way back in September of 2018, and then in January of 2019, the Supreme Court asked for the views of the Solicitor General. That wasn't the only case, though. There was another 101 case where a cert petition was filed, Hikma Pharmaceuticals versus Vanda Pharmaceuticals, and there the Supreme Court again asked for the Solicitor General's views. That was in March of 2019. In the meantime, the Federal Circuit in July of 2019 denied rehearing in bank in Athena Diagnostics versus Mayo. This case attracted a lot of attention. The vote was seven to five to deny rehearing, but the decision on in-bank consideration generated eight separate opinions. All 12 members of the court agreed that Athena's invention should be patent eligible, but the majority said they were bound by the Supreme Court's decision to invalidate the patent. 
They all seemed to agree, however, that something should be done, and they called on the Supreme Court to use Athena to clarify the law of patent eligibility. What happened next in those cases? So almost a year later, in December of 2019, the Solicitor General filed briefs responding to the Supreme Court's requests in Berkheimer and Vanda. Interestingly, the SG said that for various reasons, Berkheimer and Vanda were not the best cases for addressing patent eligibility. They recommended against taking either one, but instead recommended that the Supreme Court take the Athena case, saying it was time for the court to revisit Section 101 and that guidance from the court was needed. There were numerous amicus briefs filed in Athena that said the same thing. So with all 12 federal circuit judges practically begging the Supreme Court to take the case and the Solicitor General recommending the same thing, This made the Athena case look like the best Supreme Court vehicle for revisiting 101 that had come along in a long time. So what did the Supreme Court do with Athena and the other 101 cases? The Supreme Court turned them all down. Cert denied in all three, Athena, Berkheimer, and Vanna on January 13th. Two other petitions raising eligibility under 101 were denied the same day. And to make sure, three more petitions raising Section 101 were shot down two weeks later. So... We have the Supreme Court's answer, at least for now. It's someone else's problem to fix, and the only one left to do that is Congress. If it's up to Congress to do something, is there anything happening there? It looks like that effort may have lost steam in Congress. Last year, Senator Tillis of North Carolina and Senator Coons of Delaware held hearings on proposed legislation addressing patent eligibility, but no bills were introduced as a result of those hearings. In an interview with the IPO Daily News in January, Senator Tillis said that in view of the concerns expressed about the proposed legislation, particularly from witnesses who support the current state of the law on patent eligibility, and quote, the practical realities of the difficulty of passing legislation, he said he did not see a path forward for producing a bill, much less steering it to passage in this Congress. But then a couple of weeks later, uh, Representative Hank Johnson who is chair of the House Subcommittee on Courts, Intellectual Property, and the Internet, said Congress isn't giving up. He said that it's a, quote, very complicated issue with a lot of moving parts, but that he was hopeful before the end of this session of Congress, they'll have something that the stakeholders can come together and agree on. Well, that doesn't sound very hopeful to me, so we're in the same place we were last year. The Federal Circuit continues to decide the difficult cases, applying the Supreme Court law as it exists. Let's move on to another area of law that has been developing in the federal circuit, inherent obviousness. First of all, Mike, can you just tell us what that is? Well, let's start first with anticipation by inherency, which is a recognized and generally well-understood patent law doctrine. Under anticipation by inherency, a prior art reference may anticipate an undisclosed feature of a claimed invention if that missing feature is necessarily present in or the natural result of the elements explicitly disclosed in the prior art. The prior art may inherently disclose a claim element even where a person would not have recognized that inherent element. Now, obviousness is different than anticipation. It focuses on the knowledge of a person of ordinary skill in the art at the time of invention. So there's a tension between inherency, which allows for later recognition of elements necessarily in the prior art, and obviousness, which does not allow hindsight. Having said that, inherency and obviousness is not new. The Federal Circuit has cautioned that the use of inherency should be carefully circumscribed in the context of obviousness, but its use is becoming more frequent in obviousness cases. 
in the last few years, there have been more inherent obviousness cases than ever existed at all before that. And in the last month at the Federal Circuit, there were two such cases, Persian Pharmaceuticals versus Alvagen and Hospira versus Fresenius. What was the Persian case about? Well, the two asserted patents in the Persian case were listed in the Orange Book in connection with the drug Zohydro-ER. The patent claims covered not only the specific Zohydro-ER formulation, but also methods of using any extended release formulation with hydrocodone as the only active ingredient to treat pain in patients with compromised liver functionality. A person sued Alvagen after Alvagen filed an abbreviated new drug application seeking approval for a generic version of Zohydro-ER. Then after a bench trial, Federal Circuit Judge Bryson, who was sitting as a district court judge in Delaware, found the claims invalid for obviousness under Section 103. Judge Bryson found that a person of ordinary skill in the art would have been motivated to administer a particular prior art hydrocodone formulation to patients with compromised liver function. What's interesting is some of the claims also recited pharmacokinetic parameters, which generally involve how the body affects the drug through absorption, metabolism, and so on. The court found that the pharmacokinetic limitations were inherent in any obviousness combination because the recited parameters were necessarily present in the particular combination of prior art references. What did the Federal Circuit decide on appeal? On appeal, Pershing argued that the district court improperly relied on inherency because no single piece of prior art taught administering a hydrocodone-only formulation to patients with compromised liver functionality. Federal Circuit disagreed, explaining that inherency may supply a missing claim limitation in an obviousness analysis where the limitation at issue is the natural result of the combination of prior art elements. The court first traced the inherent obviousness doctrine going back to the Court of Customs and Patent Appeals. The court said it has long been settled in the context of obviousness that mere recitation of a newly discovered function or property inherently possessed by things in the prior art does not distinguish a claim drawn to those things from the prior art. The court gave the example from a 2012 case, Santeros versus Par Pharmaceuticals, which explained that an obvious formulation cannot become non-obvious simply by administering it to a patient and claiming the inherent serum concentrations, for example. Otherwise, any formulation, no matter how obvious, could become patentable merely by testing and claiming an inherent property. Federal Circuit emphasized in Persian, though, that inherency is still a high standard that is carefully circumscribed in the context of obviousness. Inherency can't be established by probabilities or possibilities. It requires that the limitation is necessarily present or is the natural result of the combination of elements explicitly disclosed by the prior art. Here in the Persian case, the district court, Judge Bryson, correctly relied on inherency because the combination of the particular prior art elements necessarily resulted in a formulation that had the claimed pharmacokinetic parameters. Now, the Persian case was followed two weeks later by another case on inherent obviousness, Hospira versus Fresenius. Tell us about the Hospira case. What was that about? The Federal Circuit again relied on inherency to affirm a district court decision finding the patent claim invalid for obviousness. The patent claimed a premixed formulation of dexmedetomidine, a sedation drug that remains stable and active after prolonged storage. The key patent claim had a limitation that when the liquid pharmaceutical combination was stored in a glass container, the concentration of dexmedetomidine decreased by no more than 2% after storage for five months. 
So what happened? The district court found that all the other claim limitations were shown in the prior art, and the no more than 2% limitation was inherent in at least one specific embodiment that was taught by the prior art. This was actually shown in sample batches of the premixed sedative that had been tested and met the 2% limitation, even though those samples were not themselves prior art. And so what did the Federal Circuit decide? The Federal Circuit first held that it was not improper for the district court to rely on data from samples after the patent filing date. The court said that extrinsic evidence can be used to show what is necessarily present in the prior art, even if the extrinsic evidence is not itself prior art. It can help elucidate what the prior art consisted of. Here, there were more than 20 samples that all met the no more than 2% limitation. So as a factual matter, the district court did not clearly err in finding that the 2% limitation was necessarily present in the prior art. The court actually cited the Persian case from about two weeks before and held that the patent claim was invalid because the 2% limitation was not an additional requirement imposed by the claims, but rather a property necessarily present. And so the claim was invalid for inherent obviousness. Our guest has been Mike Jakes, a partner at Finnegan, one of the largest IP law firms in the world. For more commentary on intellectual property news and issues, to listen to other podcasts, and to receive additional information on the firm, please visit www.finnegan.com. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Finnegan.